Welcome to Trailhead Church. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going over to John chapter 13 this morning. Uh, so go over to John 13. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the floor around you while you're grabbing it. Uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. We're moving our way through a, a sermon series called Consecrated. We're in the third week of this series. And um, this morning we're going to be looking at a text in John 13 to, uh, to continue um, our study of this. All right, so John 13, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses... We're going to go ahead and just look at uh, 1 through 18, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing... You do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sends him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning, guys. Um, This is our last week in this space. Um, Yeah, if if this morning is your first time, welcome to the last time that you'll be joining us in this space. Um, We've been meeting in this space since October 2010. Um. It was, we started meeting here a few months before our public launch as Trailhead Church. We're about five and a half, a little over five and a half years old. I added it up. That was just over 300 Sundays that we've met in this space. And in that time, we have seen dozens of baptisms. We've seen well over 100 people sent out on mission. We've seen two daughter church plants sent out. One to Collinsville, one to Troy. We've seen one long-term mission team sent to East Asia. People have seen the beauty of Jesus. They have found the comfort of grace and the richness of community and the challenge of mission. And all the while, we've been gathering in this space weekly to worship. (laughs) Who knew an old bank space? could be such an awesome space to worship. 
I remember um, driving through Edwardsville looking for some place where we could gather on Sunday mornings. Edwardsville is kind of a rough spot to find open space, and uh, especially space we could afford. <laughs> and, um, and Lauren, my wife, spotted this spot. She just was peeking through the windows, and she's like, that whole first floor is vacant. And, uh, and so we just started driving around it, praying. And uh, I remember um, we would be meeting over at New Song. Uh, they were gracious enough to allow us to meet on Sunday evenings in their space. And we would drive over here to the parking lot and sit here and just pray. And uh, Lord, give us this space. Lord, give us this space. And um, of course, it came right down to the wire because that's the way it always works, you know. God doesn't part the sea until your foot's about ready to go into it. And uh, we were, I mean, it was the Thursday when we had to make a decision to either try to get into the schools or it was that day. Got a phone call, got in here, and um, a plumber um, who owns this space and and, uh, Blue Mark, the property management team, have been incredibly gracious, great landlords. It's been a great partnership. But you know what, what, what made this space so special? It's not the low ceilings. I'm just going to give you a hint. It's not the awkwardly long seating pattern that I've had to learn to adapt to because I'm constantly swinging 180 degrees. Um, it, it is not the fact that every noise simply disappears here. Um, you know what makes this place special is the people. Over the last five and a half years, what's made this place special is the people. Because the building isn't the church. We are. And you know what's going to make the new building so cool? The people. Right? Because we are the church. The building is just the shelter of the church. It's just the place we meet to gather. We're getting a new, better, cooler shelter. That's what we're getting. And it's pretty cool. And starting next week, we're going to be there. So if you come next week, which I hope you do, don't come here. Okay, Um, you'll see a sign on the door that says wrong place, right down the street. So we're going to our new building and it's very easy to get to. All you got to do is go right down Main Street to Hillsboro. That's the light right there. Take a right. And uh, and we're there on the left. We're the the old Masonic Lodge and um, uh, it's right next to the bus stop. It's about 75 yards as the seagull flies. Right. If we had seagulls. All right, so two weeks ago, uh, when I started the Consecrated series, I called us to focus on this verse, Joshua 3, 5. I want to put it in front of us again. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And I drew a parallel uh, to our situation. We stand the same way Israel stood on the edge of Jordan, ready to pass over the river into a land of both opportunity, a land flowing with milk and honey, and a land of challenge, a land filled with giants. Uh, We stand on the verge of uh, a new opportunity that will bring both blessing and challenge. And God is, in the same way he was calling Israel, he's calling us to get ready. He's calling us to consecrate ourselves. And we talked about how consecration starts with us humbling ourselves in prayer before God. That was our first week. We, we talked about our need to, to pray our way into praying, uh, to pray our way into humility, to pray our way into asking God for, for the things that, that we should be asking God for, right? And in so doing, uh, becoming aware once again of God's power and God's love. Once again, becoming aware of our dependence on Him and how absolutely dependable 
he is. And as we see his glory, we are then moved by his love. And the Spirit awakens within us a desire for greater purity. That's the, the first manifestation of consecration. And we talked about that last week. The need for confession and the need for just owning our brokenness and our sin and, and the areas that we love to keep hidden, just owning and bringing it to the light, into the beautiful light of grace where it can be exposed and cleansed, right? Not judged, not condemned, but, but washed, right? Cleansed by, by the, uh, the presence and, and the beauty of grace. And as we confess... And God gives us the gift of change, the the gift of repentance. God frees us into a new gift. He frees us into the noble gift of servanthood. Because in God's kingdom, the servant is king. In God's kingdom, service is nobility. So let's take a look at our text um, because it's a pretty heavy one. John starts um, the chapter in kind of an interesting way. He, he begins with a, a writing technique. John, John is, is, in my consideration, the most poetic of the New Testament writers. Uh, he had a real strong poetic streak in him. He loves poetry. He loves metaphor. He loves imagery. And he loves playing with language um, to, to draw out effects. And he starts chapter 13 with a technique of building tension and building expectation. I, I don't know if you noticed that, but verses 1 through 4 have one central sentence. And that one central sentence is, Jesus rose from supper. That's it. That's the central sentence. Jesus rose from supper. It's no big deal. It's a simple action, something he did every day and we do every day, right? Except that John uses every other phrase in these four verses to build suspense and to infuse this action with cosmic meaning. Right? To make us, in a sense, almost catch our breath as he rises. Right? He's, he's using this technique so that when he rises, there's a sense of expectation, like, like something grand, incredible is about to happen. Right? In verse 1, in verse one right, he says, when, when Jesus knew his hour had come, right? this sense of, of impending action, right? that, that everything, everything's been leading up to this point, his hour has come. The hour to depart out of this world to the Father. The sense of impending glory, right? Just about to break through. Having loved his own who were in the world, right? Giving a context for this action. This is going to be a manifestation of the love that he has developed and practiced uh, toward his disciples. He loved them to the end, right? That word end there means, means to the uttermost, to the completion. There's something about to happen here that is a manifestation of, of, the, of the ultimate act of his love. In verse 2, he goes on. And he says, the devil had already put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus, right? So you get some tension put into this scene that, that there's betrayal in this group, that, that as he is, is getting ready to this action, this is not a, a group that is fully with him. There's rebellion um, already placed in it. In verse 3, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, speaking of impending authority, right? That he came from God, speaking of his weighty glory, and that he was going back to God, this impending return to glory. And then he says, Jesus rose from supper. Are you catching the gravity? Like, like he's, he's building all of these ideas into this one simple action. All of these things culminate in this one simple action. What he's saying is, don't overlook this. 
Don't think this is mundane. Don't think this is normal. This is not like every other time he has gotten up from supper. There is something unique here. There is something we can't miss here. There is something that is the, the penultimate action of why he came. The manifestation of his glory, the manifestation of his mission. So as he rises, we're we're left asking, you know, why? Why is he rising right in the middle of supper? Is it to display his glory like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration? Is he, is he going to stand and suddenly blow up with bright light and manifestation of, of, of I don't know, brightness? And in doing, maybe he's going to destroy Judas, you know, the betrayer who's sitting in the midst. Maybe this glory is going to, to lift up those who love him and destroy those who are working against him. Whatever it is, John obviously thinks it's monumental the expression of everything he's just built up, right? He's going to rise, and it's an expression of authority and power. It's an expression of ultimate love. It is an expression of his, of his surpassing glory. It's an expression of why he came, and it is a taste of where he is going. It is glorious in the truest sense of the word. So what did he do? Well, Jesus did what he often does. He did what no one expected him to do. He confounded them. He washed his disciples' feet. In verses 4 and 5, I want you to notice how carefully John describes Jesus' movements. Remember, John was there. John was at this Last Supper. This is the night of Jesus' betrayal. Right? This is the night right before he's going to be delivered over to the cross. And John is thinking back, and he remembers with, with clear detail. I mean, listen again to verses 4 and 5. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It is so rich in its descriptive detail. He doesn't just say Jesus got up and washed the disciples' feet. I mean, he describes each of these movements with, with a tenderness, with a, with a striking, vivid memory, like it was burned into his mind. Now, for us to understand the gravity of what's going on, we need to understand um, what washing of the feet meant in the, at this time and in this culture. Um, during this period of time, people didn't wear shoes and socks like we do, and, and, and they were not obsessed with cleanliness as we are. Uh, it was not common for people to take baths unless they were ceremonial or ritual baths. Um, people did not take three showers a day when it was hot and humid, right? They, 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 they walked around in sandals, and as a result, they were constantly walking in dirt and grime and animal feces and mud, and their feet would get super grimy. Their feet would just get disgusting. And, and when you came into someone's home, um, what would happen is they would often take off their sandals and leave them at the door because they, they didn't want to track all of that grime into the home. And if you came to um, a wealthy man's home, somebody who had servants, they would often have a servant available to you to wash your feet when you arrived. Now, the servant who got this job was like on the bottom rung of the servant ladder. You know what I'm saying? Like, like nobody wanted the job of washing the feet, right? Serving the table, you know, that's kind of cool. 
you get noticed, you, 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 you get to do things that are, that are you know, kind of cool and, and, you know, but washing the feet, man, uh, nobody paid attention to you when, the, when you were washing their feet, right? So the servant who was washing their feet was almost invisible. He was somebody who, who had to get in there and like, you know, you know what I'm saying, like scrub between the toes and, and you know, kind of scrub the bottom of the foot. And, and, and the whole time the person is, is like, they don't, even, they don't even pay attention that you're there. They're there talking to all their friends and, and they just move on and you're down there doing this, this lowliest of jobs. I mean, it didn't get any lower in the household jobs. In fact, Jewish landowners, Jewish hosts, wouldn't give this to Jewish servants. They would give this job to Gentile servants, non-Jewish people, because it was, it was so low that uh, they considered their Jewish servants too good to do it. Yet, oddly enough, they, they're not in a wealthy person's home. They are not, so they didn't have someone to wash their feet when they first arrived. They're in an upper room, um, and, and there's lots of discreet things going on at this point in the story. Right in the middle of the meal, Jesus gets up and he washes their feet. He takes the job of the lowest servant. And he goes from, from man to man, removing their sandals or, or if their sandals are already removed, taking their feet, washing them. Looking them in the eyes, I guarantee you this time they noticed who was washing their feet. This time they paid attention. And I'm sure they didn't know what to do. Because this wasn't an inhuman act. This wasn't a dehumanized servant who was just washing their feet and they could ignore and move on and pretend like the person didn't even exist. This was someone who loved them. It was very intimately and carefully washing their feet. Each one of them probably in shock as he moved around the room. Now I want you to think about this. Judas was in that room. Jesus washed Judas's feet. The man who would betray him. The man who later that night would leave to hand him over. That he might be scourged and crucified. He took that man's feet and looking him in the eye with love and tenderness, washed his feet, took his own towel, his own garment, and dried his feet. And then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter is like the best of the disciples because he's always the comic relief. You know, Peter's like, what are you doing? You can't wash my feet. Jesus is like, well, if I don't wash your feet, you got no part. Okay, then give me an entire bath, right? Wash my head, wash, give it a man, do it all. Jesus is like, no, I'm here to wash your feet. And he actually uses it as a, as a, uh, a metaphor, as a symbol to say, look, when you're clean, you only need to wash your feet. And what he's saying is, you've believed in me, Peter, and your faith in me has made you clean. Like, like I'm, I'm getting ready to go die for your sins. And when I rise again, man, I'm going to seal your forgiveness. You're clean. All you need to do is, is come to me to have your feet washed, which is a great lesson about, about our need to keep coming back, like last week in confession, and keep coming back to let God in his grace cleanse us, and, right? So he's saying to Peter, man, back off, man. Don't ruin my symbol here, right? I'm not going to wash your whole body. I'm just going to wash your feet. But he takes Peter, who, by the way, in less than 24 hours, is going to betray Jesus. 
In less than 24 hours, he will deny Jesus when he's confronted by a slave girl in a courtyard while he is on trial. And he takes Peter's feet and gently washes them and dries them. There's an intimacy to this service, a humility of love that shook them in the moment. And I guarantee you, the farther they got away from it and the more they thought about it, the more deeply it shook them. So why did he do it? What did it all mean? Take a look, verses down in 12 through 16. I want to read these again just to drive this home because he gives us the answer. He says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do you know what I did to you? Do you know why I just did it? You call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, I am. You call me teacher. That would have been rabbi or rabboni, right? It was, a, it was an endearing term that basically said that, that I come and submit to your teaching, right? In other words, he has a, a cognitive authority. He has an authority to tell them what to think. That's what that means. He can look at them and say, this is what you need to think. This is what is true. And and if you don't agree with it, it's because you don't see it yet and you're not quite there. But I'm going to tell you, I have authority to tell you what to think. He is teacher and he is Lord. The word Lord means he has behavioral authority. He can not only tell them what to think, he can tell them what to do. And that word Lord is really loaded, that Greek word kurios, uh, because in the Septuagint, that word Curios was used to translate the actual name of God, Yahweh. They thought the, the name of God was too sacred to, to say. And so when they made the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, they used the word curios, Lord, in its place. And when Jesus takes that title to himself, he's fully aware of its full meaning. Right? He's saying, you call me teacher and you call me Lord and you are right. So, that makes his actions that much more unexpected, right? At this point, the disciples are like, yes, (laughs) that's why what you did doesn't make sense, right? Because you're at the top of the ladder. And people at the top of the ladder don't do that, right? And Jesus is saying, you're right. I am on top of the ladder. I'm up here, right? And I'm not just on a higher rung from you in authority, in influence, in power, in prestige. I'm not just on a higher rung. I'm on the highest rung. I'm the ultimate teacher. I'm the ultimate Lord. You're right. I'm on the highest rung. I I get to tell people what to think. I get to tell people what to do. I come from the Father, and I go back to the Father. I come from God, and I go back to God. All things have been given into my hands. This is my hour, my hour of honor, my hour of dignity, my hour of destiny. And I wash your feet. And you're not greater than I am, are you? 
looks at his disciples. You're not, you're not greater than I am, are you? You're right. You call me teacher. You call me Lord. You're not greater than I am, right? So guess what? You should do what I do. If I am the one who gets to tell you what to think, and I am the one who gets to tell you what to do, you should follow my example. Are you catching what he's saying? Let me drive this home. What he's saying is service isn't simply something that God wants us to tack onto our busy schedule. You know, like, like eating at a restaurant and you get to the end and then you're like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to tip. How much do I have to tip, right? A lot of us, that's how we approach service. It's like, oh, oh, oh yeah, I should contribute somehow. How much do I have to contribute? How much, how much do I have to give? How much do I have to sacrifice? How much do I have to lay down my life? How much do I have to inconvenience myself? How much do I have to make my schedule available to others? How much do I have to make my energy available for other people's use? How much do I have to make my personal comfort insecure or sacrificed so that other people can have comfort? How much? And we usually determine that level by whatever feels good. How much do I need to sacrifice? As much as I need to sacrifice so I start feeling better about myself. And when I get to that point, I'm done. I did enough. I did my part, right? which is an incredibly low bar to set. Let's be honest. You, you pretty much have really low expectations of yourself, if we're honest, right? Kind of like tipping. <laughs> Most of us, if left to ourselves, would be horrible tippers, right? 20%, oh, what a ripoff. 18%, eh, 15%, uh, ten, I don't know, leave a dollar. I got an extra dollar in my wallet, right? We like to give enough that we feel good about the giving, but not enough that it actually hurts. We like to serve enough that we actually feel good about ourselves and our service, but not so much that it actually costs. Listen to me, service, what he's saying here, service is not something you add on. In fact, service isn't even something you do. He's saying it's something you are. Because it's something he is. You aren't greater than him, are you? No? Then you now have a new measure of greatness. You now have a new measure of success. It's a totally revolutionary example of power. Because we're not just talking about behavior. We're not just talking about something you do. We're talking about completely redefining the ladder of success. Life isn't about getting ahead. See, that's how we look at life. We look at life as this ladder. We know where we are. We know where we want to be. And the goal is to move up a rung, right? To make more money, to get more power, to have more comfort, to get more vacation time, to, to, to have more influence, to get more people who love us and adore us. Um, the, the key is to, to get one more rung ahead, more authority, more power, more wealth. The goal of our ladder is to get to a place where more people have to listen to what we say and more people have to do what we tell them to do. Our goal is to get up to a higher place where we can tell people what to think and we can tell people what to do. 
That's what the world tells you life is about. That's what the world tells you success is. I mean, seriously, you guys, you can be the biggest idiot on earth. And if you have this power, you got enough money, you got enough people following you on TMZ, you got enough paparazzi following you around, everybody adores them and worships them. They might at the same time shake their head at them, but most people secretly wish they were them. Because this is the goal of our culture. This is what our culture tells us success is, is to move up the ladder to, so that you can ha- have the ability to tell people what to think and, and, and have them do what you want them to do. It's the ladder of pride. You guys, listen to me. Jesus is calling us to get off the ladder. What he's saying to his disciples is the reason this is shocking to you is because you measure the wrong things. So you're defining success in the wrong way. Jesus is our teacher and our Lord. And he is using that authority to challenge our understanding of success. He says, this is who I am. And this is who I made you to be. And then he says something that is crazy hard to believe. The craziest thing in this whole section is in verse 17. I'm going to put the verse up on the screen. Jesus says to his disciples, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, most of us just skim over that verse because it sounds very religious. And we're like, oh, yeah, there's a little blessing. That's wonderful. That's nice. But I still want more money and more vacation, a bigger home and more comfort, more power, more influence, more, more people who adore me, more people who love me. Right? Jesus is saying a couple things here. First, is that most people don't know this. This thing that he's just revealed to his disciples, most people don't know it. This thing that he's just revealed to us, most people don't know it because it's not intuitive to us, right? We we can't see it on our own because we're born in pride. We, We are bent toward pride and we are a culture shaped by our pride and our pride blinds us and locks us into the insanity of climbing a ladder that goes nowhere, that always promises and never delivers. It always says, one more rung, and then you'll have the blessed life. One more rung, and then you'll experience life flowing with milk and honey. One more rung, and then you'll be happy. One more rung, and then you'll be satisfied. One more rung, and you never get there. And we're insane enough to think, well, okay, then it must be on the next one. Jesus is saying most people don't see this. All they can see is the butt of the person ahead of them on the ladder and wish they were there. The second thing he's saying is this. It's not going to be easy to put this into practice. Because it's very, very likely you will know this and not do it. It's very, very likely that that you will know this in your head and not practice it in your life. But if you do, you will be blessed. Now let's be clear here. This doesn't mean that that you earn more blessing. It means you experience more of the blessing Christ has earned for you. Christ has earned us all blessing by dying for our sin and rising again so we can have new life in him. 
But here's the thing. Aren't we all pursuing the blessed life? The word blessed, markarios in Greek, it means happy, fortunate. Don't you want the fortunate life? Don't you want the happy life? Don't you want the fulfilled life? Don't you want the life flowing with milk and honey, the life of richness and all of its blessing? Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, if that's what you want, this is how you get there. And you're going to have a really hard time believing me because your heart isn't bent in this direction. You guys, when Jesus says this is the key to the happy life, we'd need to be a fool to ignore him. And yet we do it all the time, don't we? And Jesus is taking our face in his hands, just like he did with the disciples, not literally, but like a little child. Just look at me, look at me, pay attention. Look, look at me. I got something important to tell you. Stop looking over there. Look at me. This is how you get to go where you want to go. This is the secret that keeps eluding you. This is the key that opens the door you can't seem to open. All your vacations, all your bigger houses, all your relationships that you you move toward and toward and toward, all, all the new experiences, all the better food, everything that you're pursuing that can't quite feed that appetite. It's right here. It's right here. It's almost as if he's saying, I know you don't believe me, but it's true. I know you don't believe me, but this is the path to happiness. I created you. I know how you're wired. This is it. The problem is you're going to be challenged because you're going to want to use your power to crush your enemies, not wash their feet. You're going to want to use your influence to build a life of comfort instead of making yourself uncomfortable for others. You're going to want to protect your position of influence or your security in life instead of laying aside your security to make yourself vulnerable for the benefit of others. You're going to want to protect people's high opinion of you. But instead, you need to stop working for their approval and just love them. See, here's the thing, you guys. The world says you need power and privilege and comfort and influence and, f- and fame to have the blessed life. Just a little bit more than you have now. Just, just a little more. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm telling you the truth because I'm showing you the truth. Set that aside. In the same way Jesus took off his garment, set it aside. Take off your garment, put on the towel. Set aside your desperate need for all those things. And instead, love and serve out of love. And you'll be blessed. Is there a more non intuitive message that I could give you this morning? Here's the key to your happy life. Be a servant. Here's the key to a life that is flowing with richness and joy. 
Lay down your rights for others. Take the lowest rung. Get off the ladder. Stop measuring where you are and where you want to be. Stop comparing yourself to other people's lives and see people and love them and serve them. So what does it look like for us to put this into practice? In our culture, in our time. Well, here's the thing. There are churches today that still practice foot washing. And um, first time I heard of it, I thought, oh, man, that's weird. You know, it's not like we've got dust on our feet. Our feet are in socks. They're just hot and sweaty. Everyone in the room is now thinking about their feet. You're welcome. Right? So, so what are we supposed to do? The more I've thought about it, I've actually got friends who um, they practice foot washing in their churches. Like when they do their, their members, the new members come in, the existing members actually wash their feet. I think it's actually beautiful. I'm sure it's weird. I'm sure it's awkward, right? But it's intimate. It, it, it is service, right? It, it, is, it communicates something, I think, that is humble and, and powerful. But I think we miss the point if we limit what Jesus is saying to this one specific activity, right? You just need to go out and wash people's feet. Some people are not going to welcome that very much. Um, the way John built this up, remember the way he built it up in the verses one through four? That this is, in effect, one of the greatest messages Jesus gives us. This is the culmination of his ministry. This is the heart of his mission. This is the expression of his love. This is the manifestation of his glory, right? All of those things, the way John built this up, it is clear that he saw this as a monumental revelation to us. Not just an activity we should do, but the kind of people we should be. The kind of people we should pursue being. A foot-washing people. A people of love. So I want to give us a few ways this morning that we can put this into practice. Right? A few ways that, that, that it's not just about doing service, but it's about a way of of. of being changed in the process, right? Because there are ways to serve that only build our pride. You can go and serve and suddenly you feel superior to those who aren't and really good about yourself. So how do we serve in a way that that really helps us enter into the heart of this lesson in a way that is transformative to our hearts? Well, for that to happen, we're going to have to serve with intentionality. And here are some ways we can do that. First of all, we need to foster humility through service. Like serve with the intentionality of entering into humility. What does that mean? Well, here's the thing. I don't know if you've noticed it, but you can't just say, I think today I'll be humble. Right? The Bible says a lot about humility. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Right? Humility is strength. Humility is dignity. Humility is being rooted deeply to the ground. Somebody who's humble has nothing to prove and nothing to defend. A person who's humble can be bluntly honest and graciously loving simultaneously because because they have no edge. They have nothing to prove and nothing to hide. They they just are who they are. They're so comfortable in their own skin that they make com- people comfortable near them in their skin as well. Humility is this beautiful thing, but you can't just decide to be humble. You have to actually kill your pride to make space for humility. Because pride fills the entire gap. That's what pride does. It puffs up 
and it will take up all of the oxygen of your soul. It will, it will absorb all of the light. For humility to flourish in our souls, we need to be in the process of killing our pride. And serving can be a powerful way to kill our pride. Guys, listen to me. It is good for you to inconvenience yourself to serve others. It's good for you to serve to the point and beyond the point of it hurting. Not just that level that you set where it still feels good, but you, you're ready to say, okay, I'm done. Right? Because we'll normally serve to that point where the reward is, is, is balancing out by the sacrifice, right? And when you get past that point, man, that's when it really starts hurting. I'm telling you, it's good for you to go past that point. It is good for you to serve in a way that hurts. Like, like, like it hurts when I, when I sacrifice this time. I really do feel inconvenienced by, by this request. I, this really is putting demands on my personal life, my personal space, my personal comfort, my personal uh, influence in ways that are difficult for me. It is good for you. You know what's even better for you? To do that service in hidden ways. So no one knows about it. Except Jesus. To make monumental sacrifices that no one thanks you for. And if someone doesn't notice, or excuse me, and if someone does notice, and doesn't thank you? Doesn't even acknowledge your service? Doesn't even acknowledge your great sacrifice? You thank Jesus that you get a taste of what it, of what it means to be a servant. You're like, Steve, that doesn't sound like the blessed life to me. I've been there, I've done that. That's a really uncomfortable place to be, Right? It feels like people are taking advantage of you. It feels like people are a black hole of need, and and the more I give, the more they want. The more I make myself available, the more they walk on me. I can't do that. Listen to me. You know why it feels like death? Because for humility to be born in your heart, pride has to die. And it will feel like death. Pride doesn't go without a fight. And your heart is not reoriented toward the beauty of grace without experiencing the struggling death of your sin. It feels like death. And you know why it feels like death? Because you're proud. It's in fact your pride that makes it so painful. Somebody who's humble doesn't experience the same pain you feel because they've already been delivered into the strength of humility. The reason it hurts so much is because you have so much pride. So listen to me. When you feel that pain, take joy. Say, thank you, God, for putting to death the pride that wants to kill my soul. Thank you in this hidden service, Lord, for delivering me from my, my self-enslavement to an insane path of self-glory. 
Use this service for your glory, Lord, and deliver me into the gift of humility. This is the path of the blessed life. And here's the thing, you need to step out in faith when it feels like death and tell yourself this is actually the path of life because your pride's going to whisper in your ear, you can't do this, you can't go there, you can't give this much, this hurts too much, this is too much sacrifice. You need to say, no, I'm following in the path of my foot-washing Savior. He's my teacher, he's my Lord. Am I better than him? I'm not. That's the path. So I will serve. I will intentionally foster humility through my service. Secondly, you need to intentionally foster love through your service. In our prideful hearts, what we like to do is we like to use people and do tasks. We like to use people and and do tasks. We use people when we serve because we like them to thank us. We like their adoration. We like their admiration. We like them to look up to us, to see us, to notice our sacrifice, to, to, in a sense, puff us up so we can have the humble brag, right? Look how humble I am, right? And somebody noticed how humble I am. That makes me feel good about my humility. That's pride. That's not humility, right? We like to use people. So we'll serve them so they'll thank us. We'll serve them so that, so that they can feed our need to feel humble. That is the deceptive nature of our pride, right? We like to use people and we like to do tasks, right? Especially if you're productivity oriented. Anybody have checklists at home and checklists for the checklists, right? You put, I need to make my checklist. You put that on your checklist so you can check it off, right? So you're driven by this need for productivity. That, that is just as much a self-centered pride drive as anything else. You, you, you serve. Why? Because you have an innate need to feel productive. It makes you feel good about you when you're productive. It makes you feel better about you when, when you get more things done. And you know that because it does two things. When you don't get things done, you feel shame. And when you do get things done, you feel superior and prideful toward people you consider lazy. See, when we serve, absent of love, all we're doing is feeding our pride. We need to make it about the people we are serving instead of the people who thank us. We need to make it about the people we are serving instead of the tasks we are doing. When we serve in love, we do it purely because we want someone to be blessed. We're not thinking about us. This is so unintuitive. The best example I can give you as as a parent is, man, when your kids are little and they're helpless, you know your kid's not going to thank you. When you get up in the middle of the night to change their diaper or to feed them or you comfort them when they're sick or, or whatever it is, you know they're not, you know, you're not doing it so you get thanked. You're not doing it so that you get an increase in press. You're not doing it so you can check them off the list because kids have a way of destroying every list you've ever made. That's probably the closest we get in the natural state 
to experiencing what it is to serve purely out of love. I'm doing it purely so you will have more comfort. I'm doing it purely so you, your well-being will be protected and blessed. Even that, by the way, is selfish because we have an intrinsic, apparently, love for our child that makes us incredibly protective of their well-being, and we take great pride in their well-being. We take great pride in their health and in their comfort and in their strength and in their success, and so even that is selfishly driven. What Jesus is calling us to is something so radically unintuitive that it requires the grace of God to do it. We are to love people. (laughs) Which ones? Yeah, all of them. What about those people who don't like me? Jesus washed Judas's feet. What about those people that are annoyingly head, you know, they just, they just, they, they want to correct you all the time. They want to fix you all the time. They're the people that always post on your Facebook posts to point out what you did wrong or to, show, what about, Jesus washed Peter's feet. See, God is calling us to love not service. Do you understand the difference? Love is the general motivation. Service is the manifestation. We serve then our way to love. You can't just turn love on, but you can choose to serve with the intent of growing in love. You serve your way to love. So we need to foster our awareness of the people we serve. We, we need to learn to love them as God does, to pray for a heart, to care for them, and to yearn for their well-being in a way that isn't intuitive to our self-interest. Maybe this is a good place to start. Maybe we pray for hearts that are so amazed by our foot-washing Savior, so undone by, by a God that would love us that much, that we begin by doing it for love for Him. begin by doing it by saying, Jesus, I serve this person who I find incredibly unpleasant. I serve this in this environment that I find incredibly difficult. I do this because I love you. Will you help me to grow in love for them? I don't think that's a prayer that will go unanswered. Because as you do that, I think you'll learn to love others as Jesus does. So we need to foster humility in our service pursue humility, don't just serve, but pursue humility in the service. We need to pursue love in our service, and we need to pursue and foster awareness through our service. See, pride has a way of distorting the way we view life. Doesn't it? If we're honest, all of us know exactly where we are on the, on the ladder, the socioeconomic status ladder. We know where we are, we know where we want to be. We're all keenly aware of where we sit and where we want to be. And we're very focused on our experience and what lacks in it. That's what's natural to us. We know what we have. We know what we want. In that position, you lose the ability to see life from any other position below you. In fact, you almost lose the ability to even think about the people below you because you're so focused on where you are and where you want to be. The people who have less power, less privilege, less influence, less wealth. 
when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he identified with the most powerless of the powerless. He identified with the people who have the least social clout, the people who have least social influence, the people who have the least ability to protect for themselves, to fend for themselves, even to speak for themselves because their words aren't even heard. They're dehumanized to the point of becoming invisible in their culture and their environment. We need to pursue an awareness to foster awareness of other people's experience of other people's perspectives, of other people's challenges, even though they're not ours. So here's the irony. I think we've developed really good ways to serve and protect that actually protect our pride. We step out of our comfort for a few hours to do something nice for people we perceive as needy. Whether it's stepping out to build a house or to feed the homeless or, or to uh, do some other act. And, and we go and we sacrifice, an ironic word for, for what it's actually happening. We go and we sacrifice a Saturday morning. And then we get to go home to our positions of privilege, our positions of power, our position of influence, our position of our comfort. Unchanged. Because we came in in our pride and we gave from our abundance and then we stepped back into our comfort as a way of simply puffing up our pride so that our pride could wear the garment of humility. You guys, listen. We need to get this. We need to drive this into our souls. We are impoverished by our pride. The joy of our life is run dry by our pride. Your pride is your greatest enemy because it's the manifestation of your cosmic insanity that you can, in fact, be God and should be God. We are limited, and our capacity to love is limited by this deceitful superiority. Jesus could love Judas even though Judas was filled with evil intent. Jesus could love Peter in his impetuous self-assurance and brash lack of self-awareness because he could see them. Not just who they pretended to be, not just who they thought they were. He could see them. Who they were, who they were created to be who God intended them to be. You guys, when we move into the place of the servant, we need to fight to grow in our awareness of other people's experience. Not just to serve them and to bless them from our position of power, but to realize we are limited by our position of power and robbed by our pride of a genuine and deep experience of love. We need to enter into their environments with respect, seeking to understand and grow even as we seek to bless. 
We, we need to learn to see people and understand them, to listen to them, not just give them answers. We're really good at that, just showing up and saying, well, this is how we fix this, this is how we do this, and this is how we, and then we exit. Man, we, need to, we need to enter into the experience of people that are in different socioeconomic environments to learn. Do you realize people that are struggling in ways that we aren't have things to teach us about life? about the beauty and the complexity and that we won't grow until we listen. If we seek to understand the people we serve, to love them, to see life from their perspective and understand their perspective, or at least to the greatest amount that we can, even though we don't, exist in their environment and face their struggles. Even people we don't like, even people we feel threatened by, even people we feel superior to, it allows us to love them. And love is the true heart of what makes life worth living. That's what this is all about. That's why we need to be servants because we are our own worst enemies when it comes to growing in genuine, authentic love. You guys, listen to me. Sacrificing your time, sacrificing your energy, sacrificing your resources, serving people that are not like you, people that are difficult for you to love, people that are difficult for you to understand is good for you. And it will change the way you see life and the way you experience life you will be enriched as you sacrifice for others. All right, as we wrap up, I want to put some service opportunities in front of you, kind of a practical application of this message. This is not the full expression of what John 13 is about, but it is an expression of what John 13 is about. John 13 is about approaching all of life in a new and revolutionary way. But, but one of the aspects of doing that is, in fact, serving in the church. Um, and I just want to put a real need in front of you. Every team in this place, every team serving you needs help. Every team in this place needs you to contribute and sacrifice to be part of it. They need humble people who will show up and simply ask, how can I be a blessing? So listen to me. If you call Trailhead home, even if you've only been here one week, but you're not serving, it's time to repent. It's time to get off the sidelines and into the game. You know the rule, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. The one place that should never be true is in the church. We should have people so eager to serve that we don't have enough places to organize it. And we say, go create something new. Find new ways to serve our community. Find new ways to love people. But the sad reality is, is that it's just as true in the church as it is in our culture. And that's because we are a culture of consumers. Brothers and sisters, we need to consecrate our hearts to service. Every person in this room, if you consider Trailhead home, should be serving in some capacity.
If we want to be a consecrated people, we need to be a serving people. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Listen to me, it is good for you. Will it be inconvenient? Yes. Will it cause you to sacrifice time? Yes. Will it, will it impinge on your family time? Yes. Will it hurt a little bit? Yes. Will it be good for you? Do you really believe that? If you really believe it, you're going to get involved. If you really believe what Jesus said, you're going to get involved. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do. Just to give you a glimpse where we're going. Next week, we're meeting in a new building. When we meet in our new building, we're going to have a whole new experience. It's going to be awesome. We're actually going to be able to put a sign up. People are going to know where to find us. We're not going to be the invisible church that people have to give awkward directions to. Um, and we're going to grow. If statistics tell us anything, we're going to grow. Just to give you a little hint, one of the things we're going to do, which we've never done in the life of our church, is we're going to send out mailers to everybody in our community. We're sending out over 20,000 mailers just to invite people to our grand opening on September 11th. If one-third of 1% of those 20,000 homes respond, we're going to get 60 families visiting next month. That's a lot of people. Every team is already stretched. Every team is already working harder. Well, they're working hard to make sure that this place functions and serves. So we need people working in our parking team. We need people on our greeting team. We need people working in kids' ministry. We need people doing setup and tear down. There are people that make that coffee you drink. There are people that are actually putting together the slides that you see, the creative people. There are people actually running the slides that show up to make sure that these things work. There are people serving on the worship team. There are people making sure there are Bibles and pens underneath the chairs in front of you so that when I tell you, grab a Bible around you. There's one there. There there are people serving in so many ways you don't even know. People cleaning the bathrooms between services so that you're not grossed out in second service. People that that are doing all of these things. And many of them are doing a dozen things because we don't have enough people serving. So, serve. That's my challenge to you this morning. If you know these things, blessed are you, do them. So, so let's get ready. Let's consecrate ourselves. Let's commit ourselves to serving in ways that are inconvenient and costly and difficult for the benefit and direction of, of the mission of the church, knowing that God is going to change our hearts even as we step out to serve. So visit Connection Point. It's the table right out in the lobby. If you're not serving and you want to get involved on a team, visit Connection Point. Give them your name and a contact information and an area you'd like to serve, and somebody will contact you. If you're not sure where you want to serve, if you're saying, I'm willing to serve wherever the greatest need is, say that. Be willing to step outside of your comfort zone. Be willing to do something that doesn't feel innately normal to you because we're already all doing it. Join the team. I guarantee you'll be blessed. All right, let me pray for us. We're going to go into a time of reflection. And then we'll share communion in a moment. Father, we thank you that you are the very model of what we're talking about. Jesus, you didn't just say, go and do these things. You did exactly what you explained. Jesus, as you put on that towel and you washed their feet, what a beautiful, simple illustration of your heart. 
that's most clearly manifested when, when you s- didn't consider your glory something to be selfishly held on to, but instead stepped out of your glory and took on the form of a servant, being willing to become one of us. And being obedient to the point, even of death, death on a cross, that we might have redemption, forgiveness, and new life. Lord, free us from the insanity of our pride and into the beauty and the strength of humility. I pray this in Jesus' name. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in just a moment.